Well, I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We have been going through the Heidelberg Catechism, and once you get your finger in Exodus 20, you may want to turn um, in the Catechism to question and answer 55, I believe. Nope, I was another thing I was looking at this week. Sorry, question and answer 92, Lord, today 34. It's very interesting that um, the law, which we're going to look at uh, today, in the Catechism is found in the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism. What are the three sections of the Catechism again? Guilt, grace, gratitude, misery, deliverance, gratitude, sin, salvation, service, however you may have uh, memorized that, all right? Uh, that follows the outline of the book of Romans. But the law, in, as uh, from Exodus chapter 20, <coughs> excuse me, um, is in the third part of the catechism, which is the rule of gratitude. And that is the title of this morning's sermon, the rule of gratitude. And... Uh, that's very important, and I'll have more to say about that in the course of the sermon. But uh, why don't we recite this uh, answer together? So what is God's law? God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female servant or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And how are these commandments divided? into two tables. The first has four commandments, teaching us how we should live in relation to God. And the second has six commandments, teaching us what we owe our neighbor. Very good. And uh, do keep your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 20, a couple of uh, important points to make there. Four points to the sermon this morning regarding the, rule, the law of God as the rule of gratitude. First of all, the context in which we find Exodus 20. Secondly, the content of the Ten Commandments. Thirdly, the Christ. And fourthly, 
a few points of concluding application. So the context, the content, the Christ, and concluding application. So how do you love God? How do you love God? As the children's catechism says, he doesn't have a body like men. He can't be hugged. He can't be embraced. He can't be kissed. He can't be normal uh, terms or uh, of endearment and affection. So how do you love God? Well, Jesus in the gospel according to John says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And we could say that that's the New Testament version of verses 1 and 2 in Exodus chapter 20. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20, if you will. This is familiarly known as the preface to the Decalogue, or the Ten Words, or what we know as the Ten Commandments. Listen, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The preface to the Ten Commandments rehearses who God is and what God has done for his people. It rehearses who he is. Notice the personal references. I am the Lord, your God. You are my people, I am your God. This is the essential phrasing of the covenant throughout both Old and New Testament. I will be your God, you will be my people. And right at the outset, it stated who God is, and he is a relational God, a relation, uh, relationship with his people, for whom, we are told, he brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The preface rehearses not only who God is, but pref- uh, rehearses what God has done for his people. All right? Um, and that is the gospel. All right? And the point is, is that the law is given in a context of grace. All right? God states who he is. He's a covenant God and what he has done. He has rescued his people. He has redeemed his people. He has brought them out from bondage and slavery to Pharaoh. And we know that ideally in the person of Jesus Christ, he has brought, his, he has brought us out from bondage and slavery to sin and bondage and slavery to Satan. Lest you doubt that, Jesus himself teaches us that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And um, we're also uh, taught that um, Satan has taken men captive to do his will. Though people think they are free, they are not free. They are slaves of Satan. And though they think they are quote-unquote good people, they are actually slaves of sin. And that's what Jesus Christ does. What Jesus Christ does is what God here does for his people, not because of anything that they are or anything that they have done, but purely at his own gracious, sovereign initiative, he reaches down from on high with a bare arm, an outstretched arm, and rescues his people and redeems them. Very important to note that the law is given in a context of grace. All right? And I simply ask, has God done that for you? Or are you still a slave to sin? Are you still a slave to Satan? Living under the delusion of some uh, uh, definition of freedom, all right? Now, having said that, it's critically important that we understand uh, this relationship when we talk about the law. 
God here is not giving his commandments to Israel, and he's not giving his commandments to us, in order that we might climb a ladder of merit in order to gain favor with God. God does not say, keep, uh, keep my commandments uh, in order to, to uh, be right with me. He says, because you have been right with me, keep my commandments. Or to use Jesus' words, if you love me before what I have done for you, then keep my commandments. All right? Very important to get that straight. Okay, and I would encourage you to uh, ponder that as we talk about the law this morning. It is the rule of gratitude. It is the way of life. It is the pathway in which God directs those whom he has loved, those whom he has rescued, those whom he has saved, all right, and says this, this is how you are to love me. More on this in a moment. And yet people have difficulty with actually obeying God's commandments in any number of respects. We'll look at a couple of them in a moment. But at this particular point, I simply want to emphasize for you that this is the greatness of God's love for you is that not for anything that you are or anything that you have done. God has loved you for no other reason than that he has loved you. Numerous times in Scripture we have stated to the effect the words of God, I loved you because I loved you. For no other reason than his own mere good pleasure. It wasn't because he looked down at Owen Morales and said, what a handsome, cute kid, I'm going to love him. No. It wasn't because he said, oh, Sarah Bacot, she sings beautifully. She does a great job for the church. I love her. No. He loves because he loves. For no other reason than his mere good pleasure. And he says, in response, in return, as an indication that you value my love, that you understand my gracious, saving love, keep my commandments. That is how you love me. All right? Of course, this takes a profound, and I emphasize a profound, perhaps even acute, recurring awareness of God's love for you. Otherwise, it gets this, the law gets distorted. Sinclair Ferguson aptly put it this way. He says, love was always at the heart of God's law. It was given by love to be received in love and obeyed through love. Let me repeat that. Love was always at the heart of God's law. It was given by love to be received in love and obeyed through love. Which is, bring, brings us to the second point this morning. And that is the content of the Ten Commandments. The content of God's law. Now, I'm going to take a brief moment here to correct wrong views of God's law. In the main, as a generalization, you have on the one hand legalism, that you're actually saved by obeying the law, all right? And on the other hand, you have antinomianism. That's a big word. Paul, Paul, don't get afraid of that big word, all right? Antinomianism is anti-against, nomos law, against law. Lawlessness. 
It's interesting that John in his epistle defines sin as lawlessness, right? So we need to correct those misunderstandings of God's law. God's law was not given to Israel here in order that they might make, by obeying it, by keeping the commandments, they might be made right with God. It was because God already sovereignly, graciously made them right with him by the Passover lamb, the death, the sacrifice of a substitute, as he does in Jesus Christ today, all right? Nor ought we to be antinomian against the law. If you love me, keep my commandments. Don't disregard them. Don't be lawless, all right? And I want you to see the goodness inherent in the law of God as you examine the text. Look at verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We opened our worship this morning by reading Psalm 136, thanking God for his steadfast love. And notice what Moses says here. He says he shows steadfast love to thousands who love God and keep his commandments. His steadfast love. Look at verse 10. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. That is a day of rest. We live in a society where it's work, 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 I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I go, and businesses are open seven days a week, people work seven days a week, there's no rest. God says, no, 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 you're my dearly loved people, and I'm giving you a whole day in the week to rest. Students, coming to the end of the calendar, school calendar year, but you should not be doing homework on Sunday. Rest. Your brain needs a break. It used to be that everything was closed. In my lifetime, everything was closed on Sunday. You couldn't go shopping on Sunday. Maybe a drugstore, if you knew where one would be open. A pharmacist would work. It's okay for, you know, people, works of necessity. <clears throat> but no, you need a break. God says, I love you. I don't want you to work yourself to death. You're the recipients of my grace, and my grace is to give you a whole day where you can rest. Look at, look at verse 11. He blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I wonder what you think of the Lord's day. What is your attitude towards the Lord's day? The day, not the hour, the two hours, the three hours when you're at church, but the day. How do you spend the day that God has sanctified, separated from the other six days of the week, blessed it? And elsewhere in the scriptures, says, I am attending this day with particular blessings for this day. A blessed gift from God. Look, um, in Deuteronomy, very interesting, Deuteronomy uh, 5, the second giving of the law, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. I want to come back to Exodus 20. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, in verse uh, 15, we read, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. In Exodus 20, the reason God gives for observing one day in seven is creation. God created in six days. He worked six days on the seventh day. He rested. He says, I work six days and rest one day. You work six days and rest one day. When you get to Deuteronomy, it's a different reason given. It says, remember that you were a slave. Remember that I rescued you. Remember that I redeemed you. 
and therefore honor this day, observe this day. Back to Exodus 20, look at verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, fifth commandment, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. God says there's goodness here for you. There's blessing here for you. Look at verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And here that's where the uh, commandments end. In Deuteronomy 5, it goes on to read very significantly and interestingly, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. What is the way that the Lord your God has commanded you? Do the path of his commandments, right? That you may live. That you may live. That it may go well with you. And that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Blessing, goodness, inherent right in the reading of the law. Yet many, many Christians have a negative view of God's law that we ought not to have. Look at Psalm 119, and I want you to look at this. Psalm 119. If you're a good student of the Bible, you know what's going on in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, David is uh, writing about the virtues of God's law with a number of synonymous terms. I just want you to turn with me and see David's view of God's law. Verse 1, Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Look at verse 3, Who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 39, your rules are good. Verse 40, I long for your precepts. Verse 48, 47, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Now, if you're a very good student of the Bible, you'll know that what's being referenced to here is a posture of worship. David actually says, I lift up my hands towards your commandments. I worship them. You say, hey, isn't that idolatry? No, because the Bible is a functional substitute for God. God speaks, God meets the readers and the hearers of his word. When David says that, he he says, I'm not worshiping paper and ink, papyrus or stone. He says, I'm I'm worshiping God who meets me in that word. Read on. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Verse 75, In faithfulness you have afflicted me. 77, your law is my delight. 92, if your law had not been my delight. 97, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Verse 113, I love your law. Verse 119, I love your testimonies. Verse 127, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. 
Verse 128, I consider all your precepts to be right. 143, your commandments are my delight. Verse 146, save me that I may observe your testimonies. 158, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider, next verse, consider how I love your precepts. 163, I love your law. 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. 165, great peace have those who love your law. 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. 168, I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. And 174, right near the end, your law is my delight. I submit to you that David's attitude towards the law should be your attitude towards the law, my attitude towards the law. Today, there are teachers in the Christian church abroad, law, bad, 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 no, 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 law, bad, who set up antitheses, law, bad, grace, good, Old Testament, bad, New Testament, good. This is not biblical. This is not biblical. Do you love God's law? Are you a lover of God's law? Do you know the Ten Commandments? Do you, do you realize I have to say this every time I read the Ten Commandments? 85% of professing Christians in America today cannot name the Ten Commandments, nor can they name the two places in the Bible where they're found, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And then we wonder why the church is no different than the world. We don't know what God requires. Westminster Short Catechism says, what do the scriptures principally teach? What we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. If you know those two things, you know the Bible. Not that you know every book, every verse, etc., but broad generality, right? If you love me, keep my commandments. How do you love God? Ferguson, love was always at the heart of God's law. It was given by love to be received in love and obeyed through love. It is the rule of gratitude. Significantly, and I should point out, the Heidelberg Catechism makes reference to the law in two places. The three parts are sin, salvation, service. We're looking at the third part, all right? But in the sin section, misery section, guilt section, all right, it says, how do we come to know our sin and misery? And the answer is, out of the law of God. Oh, is that a contradiction? Is the law bad? No, 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 no. Next question, what does the law of God, what does God require? It's not Exodus 20. That would be wrenching it out of a gracious context. Exodus 20 is not to teach God's people their sin. It's a rule of gratitude, how they're to thank God, love God. The answer is from Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the command on these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. That is how the Catechism says we're to learn our sin and misery, not from Exodus 20, 
It reserves Exodus 20 for the womb of gratitude. All right, what about Jesus Christ, after all? Well, Jesus Christ comes and fulfills the law, he tells us in Matthew chapter 5. Do not think I came to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Very interesting, a double negative there. Don't even begin to think that I'm doing away with the law, right? But to fulfill it. How does he fulfill it? Well, he fulfills it by his obedient life. He obeys where you and I have disobeyed. And he pays the penalty for sin by bearing the curse for disobedience. Now, let me just be clear here. If you go back all the way to the beginning, right? The Garden of Eden, God required two things. Perfect obedience and punishment for disobedience. The soul that sins, it will die. The day you eat the fruit thereof, you will die. That was the burden that hung over every human being descended from Adam until Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ obeyed the law when you and I have not obeyed it. And he paid the penalty for the law. He dies in the place of sinners and bears the curse of the law on the, curse, on the cross of Calvary that, and, pay, and dies the death that you and I deserve. Now, that's what you need to believe concerning Jesus Christ <clears throat> who fulfills the law. But look, if you will, I'm going to have you look at two more passages. One, Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Beginning in verse 1, we read, There is therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he was condemned in our place. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Right? For, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The curse of the law has been borne by Jesus, so it no longer needs to be borne by you if you're trusting in him. Are you trusting in him? Are you looking to him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? If not, the wrath of God remains on you. Please flee to Jesus. Read on. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. Notice the problem wasn't with the law. The problem was our flesh, our sin, right? God has done what the law could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. But notice the purpose clause, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Just as God set Israel free from bondage and slavery to be able to live according to his commandments, that they might have life, that they might have blessing, that they might have goodness by following his word, following his ways, so also God in Jesus Christ has set his people free, that they might obey him, that they might love him, that they might thank him by walking in his ways, following his precepts, obeying his testimonies, and walking in the pathway of his commands. And we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, a couple of concluding applications as we wrap up this morning. Three things.
John in his letter, I won't have you turn there, John in his first letter says, and his commands are not burdensome. Do you delight in God's law? Or is your attitude that it's a burden? When God says you can't live riotously, you can't live immorally, you can't live any way you want, you can't live lawless lives, you can't live like hell and expect, is that a burden to you? Do you see God as some kind of cosmic killjoy who's out to spoil your fun, ruin your Friday and Saturday nights, and require you to come to church on Sunday and sit through long-winded preachers like that Murphy guy? No, John says his commands are not burdensome. You're to be like David. They're my delight. I love your law because I love you. I love you. Secondly, question and answer 93 in the Catechism says, how are the tables divided? into two tables. First has four commandments, how we should live in relationship to God, right? We shouldn't worship any other gods but the one true and living God. We shouldn't worship idols. We shouldn't take his name in vain, and we should remember his day to keep it holy, right? That's what it means to live in relationship to God. And the second has six commandments, beginning with the fifth, kind of a hinge, right? Teaching us what we owe our neighbor. We're to honor father and mother. We're not to kill our neighbor. We're not to steal from our neighbor. We're not to commit adultery with our neighbor. We're not to bear false witness against our neighbor, nor are we to covet anything that belongs to our neighbor, right? That is, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, you don't have to turn there, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now, that's a whole sermon that I'm not going to begin at this point, all right? You can be thankful. Here's the third point, though. What does that mean? What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Follow-up question is, do you? Well, I'm not going to leave you hanging, all right? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, where we find that verse. Deuteronomy chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 5. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, here's what the overwhelming majority of Christians do, and which, if you're doing it, you need to repent. All right? You say, well, this is an idealistic statement. It's something we should aim for, but we'll never achieve it in this life, and therefore it's okay if I don't reach this goal. In Corinthians, Paul says, aim for perfection. And yet elsewhere he tells us that we're going to sin, we'll always sin until we get to glory. And we say, well, I should aim for perfection, but I'm never going to reach it, so it's okay if I fall short of the mark. I sin in thought, word, and deed every day. That's just the way I am. I ask for forgiveness, and that's God's business to forgive. If you think that, you need to repent. 
Why? What does this mean? Well, <clears throat> look, um, for example, at the context. Verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you may do them. Right? Do them. Verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God, your son, your own son, son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you. Do them. Keep them. Right? Look at, uh, look at verse 3. Here there, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may sim- multiply greatly. All right? Look at verse 6, which we didn't read. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Look at um, uh, verse 7. They're to be t- taught to your children. Talk to them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. <clears throat> And verse 8 and 9, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall be as frontlets. You write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. That's a mezuzah, which is on the doorpost of an observant Jewish home. And the tefillin and the phylacteries, all right, which they wrap around their arm because they take these verses literally. That's not what it means. These are like post-its, right? It, God says, when you, when you see these things, you're reminded of my law and you're reminded of your obligation. You're reminder. They're like reminder devices, like post-its. Simply put. The context tells us what God means. You're to actually do it. No excuses. No rationalizations. Look, let me put it this way. What does this look like? It looks like intensity. Jerry Bridges, maybe you know that name, has a very good illustration. He used an illustration comparing cruise control to a race car driver. Right? Now, if you drive, I know not everybody does, but if you drive, you know what cruise control is, right? Get on the highway, there you're going, right? Get up to, you know, speed limit, maybe 10 over if you're risky, right? And you turn on the cruise control, you can take your foot off the gas, relax your leg, right? And just cruise. Compare that to a race car driver. Next weekend is the Indy 500. I'm not an Indy 500 fan, but for the illustration's sake, all right? A race car driver is pushing that car to the limits of endurance and mechanical ability. His eyes are always focused on the task. He's intense as he's pushing his driving skills to the maximum. He's driving with everything he's got, his heart, his mind, his soul, and his strength. And as the racers approach the finish line, they're all gunning it. They're all doing whatever they can to get that machine to the line first. Paul uses this analogy in Philippians. He says, run, run, like that Olympian who runs for the prize. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? It means to be like a race car driver for Christ. No cruise control Christianity. No excuses. No rationalizations. No selling short. No. Be a race car Christian for Jesus. Because love was always at the heart of God's law. It was given by love to be received in love and obeyed through love. If you love me, keep my commandments. Let's pray. 
Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is a light unto our path, which directs us to ways that are pleasing in your sight. We do love you. Ask that you would forgive us for when we lapse into cruise control Christianity, and we ask that your spirit would empower, equip, and enable us to follow your word as race car drivers. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen and amen.